This podcast is brought to you by Florence Filter, the leading company in air filters. They care about your air and have been since 1971. Good morning, everyone. This is Brandon Matloff in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Stella Oak Mavens podcast, where we feature different mavens in different fields. A maven is an expert of an expert. They are the go-to person who you would want to ask all the questions to before making a decision. The purpose of our podcast today is to help the consumer be more knowledgeable. Your copyright lawyer on Instagram? What? Yes, today we have a lawyer who is connected with his clients and understand the minds of artists, entertainers, and creative businesses. I'm hosting Matthew Swanlin of Aesthetic Legal on the show. Matt is an intellectual property attorney. He has been a maven in the field for over 10 years. He's been a proud member of the California Lawyers for the Arts, former arts commissioner for the city of Santa Monica, and teaches art law at UCI Law School. Matt will be sharing his wisdom on how we can protect both our inventions and our content and when to do it. Also, stay tuned for the nudity writer. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me, Brandon. So, Matthew, did you always want to be a trademark and copyright attorney? Yes and no. Uh, I've always been an artist. I've always been a creative person. And early in my legal career, uh, probably about a year into my legal career, I had this profession, which was law, and I had this passion, which was creativity. And I tried to figure out a way to meld those together. And so that's how I organically became a a lawyer for artists and creative businesses. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't always really happen that way in law, right? And that's kind of unique that you experience it that way. Yeah. I mean, I started in real estate, so I was doing real estate transactions. I was doing leases and purchase and sale and refinancings and things that were challenging on a certain level, but they weren't fulfilling. Makes sense. So as we talk about fulfilling, I'm thinking about a client situation where you know, they have a young business. Uh, they're trying to be fulfilled by their business as much as they can. There, there might be a business owner. They have an idea. They're trying to earn as much money as possible right now. They don't even know if their product will be a success or not. We're all busy every day. Um, and the topic of copyrights and trademarks really isn't probably the first thing on our mind. Uh, when do we absolutely need one and why? It's interesting because I come across this a lot in my practice with actual clients and potential clients who contact me. And the reality is that with regard to intellectual property law, specifically copyright and trademark, there are mistakes that you can make early on that can be detrimental to your business, that can be catastrophic. Um, And so the earlier you address them, the better, because sometimes if you miss a deadline, you miss a filing, you miss a critical protection element, it can be lost. The intellectual property can be lost. What's the difference between a copyright and a trademark? You mentioned both. So for our listeners that may not be exactly sure which one is which, how do you describe the difference between the two? Yeah. So a copyright is uh, is the protection of a, the expression of an idea. And that can come in many forms. It can be uh, two-dimensional artwork, a photograph, an art, a, a, a painting. Uh, it could be three-dimensional, a sculpture. It can be a motion picture, a book, um, It can be computer code, and a lot of people don't realize that when you're drafting code, 
um, that code is a written language and it can be protected as a textual element under copyright. Trademark, however, protects brand names, essentially. So a brand name or a product name. Um, slogans can be protected by trademark. Uh, so there is a little bit of an overlap. If you look at, for example, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has uh, a, uh, a trademark in its logo, but it also has a trademark protection in the shape of the bottle. And they have uh, copyright in the word Coca-Cola. Uh, they have patent, obviously, in, the, in some of the elements of their recipe. But there's a lot of overlap with regard to companies and products that go through copyright, trademark, and patent. So do they all typically do that at the same time? Or is there usually a process or a structure that a company would go through uh, when they're defining, like for Coca-Cola example, like how would they figure out should they trademark the name first or their their bottle if they have a specific bottle? How do they figure that out? It's a case-by-case -case basis. So each individual business, each creator, each designer is different. And so that's why it's really critical to uh, have a conversation with an attorney early on to determine where are we now in terms of where your business is and where are you going to go? Because what you want to do is, is very proactive. You want to protect everything that you're doing now, but you have to have an eye on the future so that you can ensure that your protection lasts into the future. So th there's no real clear-cut uh, advice I could give. Um, it, it really is a fact-specific to each, each business. So we're in California. Um, I've often heard that a lot of times people want to incorporate in Delaware because it's a more friendly incorporated state. So maybe you can just speak to that. Is there a advantage of incorporating in different areas? Yeah, there, there are. And this is a, uh, I recently wrote an article on this and there is a widespread belief that Delaware is really the only come the only state in which you should incorporate. And that's valid to a certain degree because millions of businesses are, are, uh, incorporated in Delaware, and for good reason. They have a court system, a court of chancery that was formed in, I think, 1790 or 1795, uh, which only deals with corporate issues, and so it can be quick to resolve a dispute. They have very favorable tax laws for corporations. They have very favorable laws that are uh, that have been in effect for hundreds of years, and so there's a uh, a very easy way, uh, or, or there's a comfort level, I should say, in understanding the law. You know what the law is, and so you can resolve disputes and, and handle issues uh, expeditiously. Um, but for the vast majority of California business, or, for example, um, I mean, we have Apple, Google, uh, Facebook. These are all incorporated in Delaware for good reason. They're international companies. They're have huge net worths, and they need to take advantage of, of that. But for most companies that are operating in a state, for example, in California, if you're a, uh investment firm or if you're a law firm, uh, it doesn't really make sense to, to uh, incorporate in Delaware because, first of all, if you ever have a dispute, you're going to have to go to Delaware to resolve it. Uh, you're going to have to file in your home state, the state in which you're doing business anyways. So in California, even if you're a Delaware corporation, you have to file in California as what's called a foreign corporation. And so therefore, you're going to have double filing fees. You're going to have to pay the, the uh, franchise tax in California as well as Delaware. So 
uh, unless you're doing business in Delaware, doesn't really make sense. But again, this is a situation where you would want to meet with a lawyer and discuss where you are now and where you plan to be. Because if you plan on expanding into a nationwide operation uh, in the near future, it might make sense to register in Delaware. Can you start in California and then move the ultimate registration down the road to Delaware? It, yes, it wouldn't be necessarily a move. It would be a merger. So what you would do is you would file uh, or you incorporate a new corporation in Delaware and then just merge the two entities. Can you share with us a uh, fun story or maybe a client success story that you've worked with in the past and kind of walk us through the process? Like what kind of product was it in a sense or what was trademarked and how that uh, story started? Well, let me give you a cautionary tale because I think it it ends well, but it starts off bad. So I had a client who called me and they were opening a, a coffee house in Los Angeles here. And they said, you know, can you help us with this contract? We have some, they had some issues, corporate issues. And so I, I was helping resolve the corporate issues for them. And I was looking at some of their uh, product and what they were trying to do. And I said, you really should have a trademark. Uh, have you filed for a trademark in your brand name, your store name, your products, because there was a pretty extensive offering. And they said, oh, we don't have money right now. We don't, all of our money is spent on the building and all of the merchandise and all the advertising and marketing and product packaging, but uh, we'll deal with that later. And so I said, okay. Uh, three months after they opened, they got a cease and desist letter in the mail from a lawyer in New York who said, "We have. Uh, I represent a company in New York that's operating a coffee house in New York with the same name, and we have a federally registered trademark." Oh man! So there's actually two names going on at the exact same time. It's not unusual. So people are Googling something and one can show up and so could the other. Yep. They're benefiting off of one another or also losing off of one another. Yep. Wow. So what and, happened next? Well, even though they're in different, different states, they had a federally registered trademark, which is applicable to all 50 states. And so he sent me the letter and said, what do I do? And I said, well, this could have been resolved with a simple search at the beginning of the process. And we could have determined that this was already registered. But now we have to deal with it. So I negotiated a settlement with the the New York uh, company. But essentially what happened was in 30 days, he had to change all of his signage. He had to change all of his packaging. He had to change all of his social media marketing advertising. And it was a very significant cost for him to do that. Um, if you think about a coffee house that has hundreds if not thousands of bags of coffee and he had to repackage everything and so so he almost went through a rebranding he had repackaged remarketing cost expense so what's your advice to the listener as they are are in there maybe that it already exists maybe they're in a business that has another name that's already trademarked so what's your advice to a uh, listener in that regard. I, you know, I had this I had this conversation yesterday with a, a client, and we decided ultimately to not pursue a trademark registration for exactly that reason, because there's one that's very close that's of record, and we felt that if we filed for a trademark, our success likelihood of success was slim, but more risky was the fact that it would tip off the other party of our operations of their operations. Interesting. So even though uh, you get paid basically from the work that you do and for doing a trademark. You actually told the client not to do it, 
because you realize that that might end up hurting their business and you have to kind of look at the entire picture rather than just making a decision of saying, Hey, I'm a trademark attorney and I do trademarks. So let's file a trademark. Yeah. We had that conversation actually. It was, it was funny because he pointed it out as well. He said, that's funny. I came to you and was going to hire you to do a trademark. And then after you did the due diligence search, your advice was don't file the trademark. Yeah. It speaks to the integrity of the type of practice that you have. And that's probably why you've been able to build up a clientele over the years. Um, I'm wondering what is the, uh, uh, what is the, uh, song, uh, writer stuff? How does that come into play more specifically? So like you, you mentioned the coffee house, I'm thinking more on like the music side. So a lot of times someone will create like a YouTube video or, um, you know, it could be friends skateboarding with music in the background, but they're playing a famous song. At what point uh, can someone be sued for using someone else's music for their own business or their own publicity or marketing? How do you protect that? I mean, theoretically, anytime you use any piece of existing music, you are opening yourself up to liability, regardless. Uh, now, does that happen all the time? No. But uh, there's no clear-cut rule. I've heard of a lot of, of urban myths with regard to how much, how much music can I use? I can use four bars. I can use six seconds. I can use 30 seconds. As long as I don't use the chorus. It's, it, and there's a lot of these beliefs that actually are, actually are very problematic because when people believe them, they make very critical errors. So any analysis of, of music use that's not yours is under what's called a fair use analysis. And it's, I won't bore you with the, the legal technicalities, but it's essentially a four-part test. And it goes to how much are you using? Uh, how are you using it? And that's really the defining characteristic is how are you using it? Is it commercial or non-commercial use? Commer- non-commercial use would be um, education, satire, parody, commentary, newsworthiness. If you're not using it for that, it's probably commercial. So even if you're using it on your on your website, you may not think that's commercial. It's commercial because you're trying to promote something. Um, you're not doing I mean you might be able to make the argument that it's a satire or parody or social commentary, but that's going to be a, a big hurdle to get over. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, another fun question for you might be about the nudity writer and what that actually is. So the nudity writer is is an interesting element of the law um, with regard to entertainment law. It was actually part of the SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild, um, basic agreement, which is their collective bargaining agreement, which is between the actors, the union members, and the signatories, which are the production companies, the studios, the networks. And so part of that uh, basic agreement provides that anytime there's nudity in a role – or sexually suggestive content, uh, it has to be disclosed in advance to the to the talent, which makes sense. Um, it's not always done, um, and it sets forth certain rules that have to be uh, honored and, and complied with 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 regard to the to the nudity writer. It, it makes sense, but why is that unique? Well, I don't know if it's unique, but it, what it does is. It Well, it's unique because it provides protection to the artists because, listen, we know the news as what, what is happening right now with regard to Harvey Weinstein and, and uh, uh, I can't remember the other director's name. But anyways, in, in this entertainment industry, there's a lot of people taking advantage of a lot of 
less powerful people. Usually that's at the, at the expense of the actors, the actresses specifically. And so what the nudity writer does is it provides some protection so that they don't show up to an audition and a casting director or a studio executive doesn't say, take off your clothes. Well, there's protections that, that don't allow that. Does it happen? It still happens. And do actresses still do it? Yes, they do. Because they're fearful, because they don't want to lose the job. But this mechanism was it was an attempt to protect them. To first of all make sure that everybody was on the same page, because that's the critical issue. Studios want to make sure when they hire the actors, the actors come in and they are able to perform the role that they're being hired to perform. But actors also want to know, what am I getting into? When I show up for work, am I going to be nude? Am I going to have a sex scene? I need to mentally prepare myself for that. Uh, because what you don't want is an actress or an actor to get cold feet at the last second and walk off the set. That costs the studio or the network money. And so everybody wants to be on the same page. And so that's why nudity writers are actually negotiated pretty specifically. Um, and they're, they're, they usually outline the exact shot, the angle, the duration, what part of the body is shown, uh, if there's touching, if there's a merkin. Merkins are whole other topic, but, um, but it's an interesting thing. And, and hopefully it, it alleviates a lot of the, of the tension and a lot of the misunderstanding. Definitely makes sense when someone gets hired, but how do you promote, it's almost something that should be promoted to people going on interviews. Cause I can imagine a lot of people they're out of school. Maybe they're teaching about it. And so they teach about this at school. No. Okay. So I can imagine a lot of people going to interviews for the first time, the casting director, says, take off your clothes. They have no idea that this was about to take place. So it's not a really a promoted writer in a sense, but is there a way that this can be promoted more? I think SAG should be doing more work protecting its members by, by, and I think they do. I think they educate a lot of their members on different aspects, legal aspects, or even these technical aspects of their careers. This happens more on non-union productions. Because non-union productions aren't bound to the SAG standards because they're not signatories. Uh, their actors aren't SAG members. So they, there's a lot more abuse in that area than under the SAG. And this just came to light, uh, I think, last year. Uh, the, the show Westworld became very famous for not only its content but for the fact that its nudity writer was insane. It was very long. Very detailed, very graphic in terms of what was expected of extras. And so a lot of people just started learning about nudity writers as a result of, of that case. Sounds like something that should be promoted, so I'm glad to at least bring it up on the uh, podcast. I'm going to switch gears over to rapid fire. I love rapid fire time because it throws the interviewee on a curveball, so you can't think too much on your answers. We get to hear your gut reactions. Um, and some of these are just quick questions that we all want to know. So what's the cost of hiring an attorney like you? Is it per hour? Is it per project? How does it work? It's different. I'm, I, I offer different opportunities to different clients. I do flat rate. I do hourly. I do uh, percentage. If it was done incorrectly the first time, does it generally cost uh, more to fix and replace? Always. Okay. If 10 years ago, uh, the world was so different, Facebook, Instagram, wasn't part of your conversations today i'm guessing it is can you register and trademark hashtags yes you can it's very technical but yes you can how many cases do you work with on a regular basis that social media is cited as like a concern uh pass (laughs) i don't know 
I haven't thought about it. We could come back to that one. All right. Um, are you better at negotiating contracts or negotiating your fees? Uh, well, they're all contracts, but I, I negotiate contracts better. What's the most fun part of your job? Being around creative individuals and businesses. Why? Because the energy that creatives bring and produce and surround themselves with is infectious. I would think that it would make you more creative uh, just as you create your website. Like I remember looking at your website and I was like, oh, it doesn't look like a typical offer. Yeah, which is intentional. Yeah. What's the best financial decision you've ever made in your life? Uh, I spent 15 years at major law firms. Uh, one day I had a very bad day and I called my wife and said, talk me out of it or I'm walking right now. And she said, don't walk right now. Let's get home and talk about it. And so we talked and we planned. And that's ultimately when I decided to, to leave. But I didn't make a rash decision. I actually made some financial decisions and planned. Talking to your wife about it is always a good financial <laughs> <Yeah>. decision. <laughs> uh, so as we wrap up, I always like to give our listeners an opportunity to learn about like the mistakes, the regrets that we've had in our careers, uh, gives you a chance to connect with them and realize we're all human, uh, but we like to learn from one another. So what do you think the biggest uh, mistake that you've ever had? I don't know if it's the biggest mistake, but I, I, it's assuming that my client understood all of the elements. And sometimes, you know, you, you make an assumption that they might understand it and it's a lack of communication. So what have you done differently now to learn from what I've tried to do is really be specific and ask a lot of questions also to make sure my client understands all of the moving pieces and the elements. That makes sense. What's the worst financial decision you've ever made? Worst financial decision I ever made? Um, geez, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. You've never made one. I, I probably have, but I, I try not to focus on it. I try to learn from it and, and move on. Well, it's good to look at the positives and everything as well. And so that's what you've done. That's why you've built a successful career. You know, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? No, I, I mean, I think that ultimately what you're doing is great here uh, and educating these companies to make better decisions from the beginning because you can make critical issues early on that can be catastrophic. Well, it wouldn't be a great podcast, Matt, unless I could give my listeners a place to learn more. So if someone's interested in a trademark or a copyright, is there a, um, a specific website that they can go to or how would someone learn more? I'll ask you about who you specifically work with, but if somebody just in general wants to find out some basic information, where's the best place for them to look? You know, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, California Lawyers for the Arts provides a lot of really good resources, especially for artists and creatives. Um, on my website, I actually write a lot of articles. Um, and so I try to provide articles that are relevant to creators in all aspects. So I will cover as many topics as I can. And so I would Direct them to there. I, I did pull up the uh, website to find out about the nudity writer. Matt, what is the website? Aestheticlegal.com. Can you spell that out for us? A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C-L-E-G-A-L. And who's an ideal client for you? An ideal client is a creator. Um, I like getting in on the ground floor with 
new companies, new businesses that are creating something and because I can help them grow. And what I'm looking for is more long-term relationships with my clients. I want to build, I don't want to do one-off deals for people. I do those, but I would rather, and I find more fulfillment in building long-term relationships. Awesome. Well, thank you, Matthew, for your time today. I enjoyed it and I can't wait to file my next trademark. This is Brandon Matloff and this has been a Stella Oak Mavens production. We empower you, the listener, to take control of your life. You can follow our Instagram at Stella Oak Mavens for updates and more information about the podcast.